Good afternoon. This is Community Echoes with Phyllis Warren. And today we have a very interesting guest with us. Her name is Mika Morgan, and she's the Artistic Director of Two Rivers Remax Dance Society, based in Lillooet. But since Lillooet's fire, they have been moving around, and they refer to it as a movable feast. Good afternoon, Mika. How are you? I'm wonderful. It's a beautiful day here, a beautiful fall day in Sipwap Territory. Oh, that is fantastic. So um, you're the artistic director of Two Rivers Remix. Can you explain to us how this came about and what your yeah. dance society does? It's actually a festival. It's not a dance society. It's a festival society, so... Mm-hmm. Um, Two Rivers Remix Festival is an annual festival that we started in Lytton, B.C., not Lillooet, Lytton. Okay. And Lytton, Lytton um, previously I had worked in the community of Lytton for many years just as an art facilitator. And uh, I, I also have a band, a performance band, but also a collective of, of um, artists and musicians called the Malaman Collective. So we had played some shows in and Lytton as well as has had done some art projects with the youth there, and I uh, got involved with one of the community members that runs the farmers market, and we developed the Two Rivers Remix Society, and developed a yearly annual uh, all Indigenous music and arts event that had um, all different types of genres and age groups of performers, as well as workshops, and we would we would showcase a youth project during the festival every year. And then in um, 2021, last year, there was a massive fire a few days after we had done a a pre-recording because it was still COVID at that time. We had a couple, um, you know, COVID really put a a, a different spin on our work. We had went from doing a one-year festival doing multi-year programming because COVID funding we were able to access and so we were doing online, digital and virtual uh, Uh presentations and then when the fire happened it really threw us off Um, we were quite busy though during that time and so we decided that it was more depressing for us to stop our work instead we pressed on and continued our work and developed what is called now the movable feast Mm-hmm. So the Movable Feast um, gives opportunities to com- Indigenous communities first that are na- neighboring to the community that was raised by a fire lit last year. It gives them, the community nations that are in the area an opportunity to welcome us into their community, and it gives us an opportunity to present a really high-quality productions of music and art and dance um, in these communities that might never be able to see that, as well as mentorship opportunities for some of their artists in their community, but also their people. And then we also coordinate it with artisans' markets um, of Indigenous artists in every community that we go to. Um, so mm-hmm. this last year, we started a uh, at the one-year memorial uh, commemoration event of the fire of Lytton. So we went to the Lytton First Nation and coordinated some of their one-year activities with ours and presented, and then we went on to um, Lillooet 
Uh, we also went to Tuckwe Home Village, which is a beautiful indigenous uh, interpretation center near Boston Bar. Mm-hmm. And then we went and did a huge show at the Kamloops, um, to Kamloops Powwow Arbor, which is adjacent to the Kamloops Residential School. Right. And that is in the nation that I'm from. I'm from the Sikwetan Nation, and to Kamloops is a part of that nation. We really wanted to go there and offer that um, production and work of ours as a offering to to the people that are from there who have been dealing with a lot of tragedy since the founding of the 215 plus um, at that residential school. And so we really wanted to to honor them and to bring an event that brings people together at that place. And so we had a very large show there, and then it led to our main festival, which this last year we, we um, asked Cash Creek, which is the community that's adjacent to Cash Creek, the indigenous one is the cows, or they go by Bonaparte. Oh, yes. Yeah. And they actually uh, agreed to to host us, and so we had it in the Cash Creek Park, and it was really a beautiful, incredible event. Um, eventually, we moved on in August to do another two communities because they were reaching out to us. And that was Williams Lake First Nation and Okanagan Indian Band. So it's just been a process of kind of learning to deal with our our own kind of crisis. Um, you know, our town is is raised still and very, very, very not close at all to recovery. Mm-hmm. And managing producer is still evacuated. Many people are still evacuated. Um, so it's been a very difficult time for a lot of our our, not just our our um, staff that we work with, that like our office is completely raised. And with our, we just bought a brand new trailer that had all of our sound and video equipment, probably about a hundred thousand dollars worth of equipment that we had bought, and that was completely reduced to ashes. Oh my! And so it was very. Um, it was really hard to continue going in the face of all this adversity, like not just the fire, but the 215 plus, and just, you know, trying. We realized that we really had to work at keeping the people's hope up because it, we weren't the only ones suffering. There was, you know, communities of people that are suffering still. Yes. So, yeah. You know, and, and to me, it seems like a lot of Native communities have suffered great losses. And then there's nowhere, no support system to help them. But it sounds like your society is reaching out to help these mm-hmm. peoples of the communities deal with what adversities they have yeah i know and that's what i noticed too is because we've spoken about this in our own directorship because we are um, our society is made up of mostly indigenous people as well and uh, we have a variety of of people that are a part of that society but we've done strategic planning since then and a lot of that comes up all the time of how even in the face of all this we're kind of just in some kind of unspoken way and expected to just deal with day-to-day life as business as usual. Mm-hmm. And that's really, really difficult for our people in our communities because our survivors, the ones that are left, are, um, you know, they really suffer every time that there's a new finding and 
as well. We're the communities of people, you know, we have experienced the, we have had prior knowledge of this, these atrocities, and, and it wasn't taken in a serious manner. And so now that, you know, everyone, well, people have heard and have more knowledge of things. And so, um, like, even for the first couple of months, I didn't even feel like I wanted to go out into public. It was just so... I had, you know, you have people that want to know more, and really, I come from two parents who both went to residential schools, and I actually did my master's thesis on in sociology at SFU on impacts on families of the Sequatin people of my dad's age group, and the reason was is to basically cre- try to create a different relationship with my my family, but especially my dad, and and you know, the schools were such a huge, had such a massive impact on our entire community. Mm-hmm. And so just to um, be functioning at a business-as-usual rate is really difficult, not just for our survivors, but for especially for our survivors, but for people that are intergenerational, that trauma still affects them. So we've really tried to look at, like, how does that, you know, what are things that we can do that impact that? And now that we're able to in somewhat gather again, um, it's made a huge impact. Like when we went to Kamloops, oh, it was just so powerful. There was just so many kids and elders, and then everyone in between came out. And at the you know high point, there was a few thousand people there, and everyone that I saw was smiling and just so happy to be together and thank our our, our team so much. You know, they were saying like we really needed this, like. They just needed a reason to get together where it's not for something. Like, it's not necessarily for the children that were found, or it wasn't for, like, a memorial for someone or, like, a funeral, or it wasn't directed entirely at one thing. It was just to come and bear witness to this event. Mm-hmm. Appreciate it for what it is. And, and people, there's no pressure or expectation, it was just, and we didn't even know what to expect as a crew because our job is really intense for these micro festivals we do because we set up everything from like the stage, all the equipment, all the, we live stream it all, so that's all got to be, that's another team of people. Um, We do really high quality production, so, you know, we've got sound techs, uh, audio engineers, you know, front and side of house, lighting people, like, it's not a small thing that we're doing. So sometimes our, our events could be like 20-hour days for some of our crew. Oh, wow. So it, it's really, it's intense. And until we get to the main festival where we get to stay for three days, it's just like we are on beast mode. And so, um, you know, to be at that event, to have so many people just so so happy to be together. You know, a lot of times in our communities, we have divisions that have been created by um, um, a myriad of things I, you know there's so many but for these kind of events I notice people just come together and because they are able to focus on something else and, and witness someone else's story that they oftentimes can relate to mm-hmm. um, they see themselves in that they see a reflection of themselves and they want to be able to really pay attention and and witness that, and I feel like that's a part of what we're doing too. Is we're reminding people, like, 
we still have times where we have to bear witness to things. And the reason we do that is to acknowledge them. And when we do witness these stories that are not from where we're from, like it takes us out of the bubble that we're in, so that we can see beyond not just ourselves, but we can, we can relate to all these other people in the world that have experienced similar things and, and, and what they're doing to process that, how they're healing, because many of these artists, like, they are, you know, they wouldn't be where they are if they weren't doing some form of healing. Right. And it's difficult work. It's not, it's not an easy job just to go and be an artist. You know, you have to put a lot of time and energy into it. You have to be willing to share your stories and be very vulnerable, especially I've noticed with Indigenous um, artists. You know, they have to really share something of themselves. But what they get back from that, like from the audience, is always so incredible. Like, I've, I've felt like since we started, we've been really focusing on trying to create environments of safety, love, and tolerance, and especially value. So creating environments where our, even our survivors of residential schools feel comfortable mm-hmm. to do that and just be a part of, because a lot of them don't have that. It's, they're very, you know, they don't like being out and about or in crowds. or And not everyone, but I'm just looking at the experience of my own family, right? Right. Like the the my thought my father passed away in 2019, and he was at the last his last um, in Two Rivers remix was actually the last time it was in Lytton in 2019 because of course COVID happened and then the fire, but it was the first time that I saw him and his family thoroughly enjoy something. Even though some of them might not talk all the time or be close because of that experience in residential school that affected that, this was an event that they all at least sat together and they got to pay attention to something else. So I think when you're experiencing art, that's what it can do. Like, I used to organize and facilitate collaborative art projects. That's how I like to see this festival is that it's a collaborative effort. And when you're all doing something collaborative, it continues to evolve and you kind of are healing as you're doing it without necessarily having to speak to one another or even look at one another sometimes. Mm-hmm. You just have this moment of peace amongst each other. And I think the more we can create those moments, sometimes that's more healing than, you know, going to some counseling sessions or whatever that people might never even do. But if they can come to these events and maybe in some way it can impact their healing on a, in a positive way. Yes, and what I notice is in the Native communities, everyone gets together and stands behind whatever celebration or tragedy has occurred. It's like this underlying support of emotions, and we're all happy and pleased and full of respect for those victims mm-hmm. you know and not only that like our our that our youth are so vulnerable right now i mean and they have been for many so long and i i know that has that has had the schools have had an effect on that but what i notice is when we have these events and we honor the youth through presenting their works mm-hmm. creating a uh, environment where they feel comfortable to share it, even though they are, you know, anxiety and, and scared, and you know, they feel supported enough to do it. And then the people in the audience support them so much 
And then they feel inspired because they're seeing their future generations continue on, even if it's a different evolution of, of artistry and creativity. Right. Like um, we've done workshops with the youth of Lytton that we have presented their pieces at the festival, and it was probably the favorite part of most people's experience of that whole weekend. And then you get this investment from not just the, the elders, but the young people. And then everything in between seems to all really come together, and you really get that strong support. Right. And like just as an example of that, one of our touring bands, because we had three touring bands um, and a couple different acts that came with us to the whole movable feast. So the Spiritual Warriors are a Statlium-based band that is from what's known as Mount Curry, but they're in their language is Lilwat, and they do their own traditional songs and language. Um, in this reggae style that they love. Like, they have a five-piece band, six-piece band. And um, so when I was witnessing them play in Lillooet, a lot of their people came out, and a lot of elders came out. And they were just singing along because they know the songs. Even though they're saying differently in the reggae style, they still know the songs. They're still familiar with them, so they were even able to sing along with them. And they were just having such a beautiful time and... Even the young people that were getting up and doing some of their solo acts, some of their stuff is a little bit, you know, sometimes it can be a bit like, whoa, um, they're really sharing their truth. But Mm -hmm. the elders would not be affected in a negative way. They were just cheering and cheering these young people on. And you could see that they were accepting of, yes, like the way that their messages is different, but they were just so happy to see future generations up there able to express themselves yes so that's you know that's that's healing right there mm-hmm. yes and and you know that is just it um they see a different way mm-hmm. against the traditional ways but they still support it because they know that this is our future is our in our children and what they do and how they do things. So again, a hundred percent support for them, which mm-hmm. is good. But you know what, Mika, we have to go to a commercial and no we're gonna come back and continue on with our conversation. We'll be right back. Community Radio CFISFM needs your support. While our station is run predominantly by volunteers, money is always needed to keep the monthly bills paid as well as for the production of new local programming. Memberships, donations, corporate sponsorships, and advertisers all help to keep your local independent broadcaster functioning. For more information on how you can contribute to this vital part of the Prince George Media Mix, visit our website at cfisfm.ca or give us a call at 250-563-2347. Dementia caregivers are invited to learn about community supports like home care and adult day programs, as well as how to address challenges and work with health care providers during accessing services Wednesday, November 30th from 2 to 3 online. Caregivers are encouraged to register for this free webinar or watch previous presentations online through alzbc.org slash webinars. For dementia caregivers, accessing services Wednesday, November 30th from 2 to 3 through alzbc.org. 
Artisangift.org. The Studio 2880 Artisan Gift Shop and Gallery is expanding its hours for the coming holiday season. November 17th through December 22nd, the Gift Shop and Gallery will be open from 11 to 5 Tuesdays and Wednesdays, 11 to 8 on Thursdays, and Saturdays from 10 to 4. Extra hours to help you find that perfect locally handcrafted something for that someone special. Expanded gift shop and gallery hours, November 17th through December 22nd at Studio 2880. Forecast from Environment Canada for today mainly cloudy, the 60% chance of flurries, then clearing. Wind for the southwest at 20K, gusting to 40, a high of 4. Tonight clear, becoming partly cloudy late this evening. Southwest winds becoming light, a low of minus 8, with a wind chill to minus 11. On Tuesday, clearing late in the morning, wind up to 15, and a high of 1. Well, we're back with Mika Morgan, and we're going to be talking some more with her regarding a movable feast as the new way of um, helping other communities out. So, Mika, we were talking about our young people and and how they dance a little bit different, but Mm -hmm. our elders still accept the ways that they are expressing themselves. Yeah, like I think there was, um, like when I was growing up, you know, in the mid-90s as a late teenager and um, I didn't feel as accepted, especially in terms of art and um, just art and healing. Like, I, I even though um, music and art are very much a part of Indigenous people's culture traditionally, I felt like in terms of contemporary evolutions of it, it wasn't as much accepted. Um, or people just weren't aware of it. That mm-hmm. means that we have many artists in our communities, and as I was working with different communities and their youth, and recognizing through them how many artists are out there of a variety of ages, and how much it impacts. Um, like one time we had done one in, in Lytton, and with one of the communities there, and we had an exhibition of their work. And their leaders themselves were saying that they couldn't believe how many artists there were in their communities, and I just couldn't believe that they actually. But they didn't recognize this. Like, I was surprised. But what I noticed, too, is that they were willing to sit down and do art as well, and they wanted to. And I think this is something, too, that came out of that, is it's not just art isn't just for young people. It's, like, for everyone, and it's a way that you can recreate those bonds that have been um, severed in many different ways. Mm-hmm. And building ourselves back up again and... When I worked on a three-year project at the, with the Camelot Art Gallery uh, quite a few years ago on collaborative art, uh, we realized that we, these, a lot of these young people weren't uh, connected to their communities. Um, some of them weren't at all to their nations. They didn't even know very much about our nations. They didn't really want to talk about it. They weren't comfortable with it. But when we just allowed them to be where they were at with that, and allowed them to develop their own works of art based on how they felt about their own identity. Mm-hmm. Uh, then they would come up with these new ideas and present them, and they would always be, um, you know, we'd always be blown away by their ideas. We never would have thought of that. So, And then they would want to learn more about their own nations afterwards. They, would, they were more interested in learning, but they, we had to come around it with them totally with them and on their terms 
not on our expectations or our parents or our grandparents or anything. We had to really just focus on the way that they wanted to express themselves. And through that process, they were, were able to want to learn more about themselves and their, where they came from. And, and so that was an interesting, like, kind of side effect that we were able to observe mm-hmm. and carry that into our work. And, and once I did the work of working with the many elders for my, for my master's thesis and developing those ideas and bringing them into practice is when I developed what, what, I, what we call the Malaman Collective. And the Malaman means, means medicine and Sequentan language. And so when we started doing that work, um, that's when a few years later we got involved. We were able to create Two Rivers Remix, and now the Malaman Collective is more of a performing arts group. We don't do as much workshops anymore. We do them occasionally, but we don't do bigger projects as, as much anymore. We, we're more of a performance band, a live performance act. We have six members of our band in there. Um, my son is one of the members, and he writes with us too, and so that's what we're trying to bring across to is this intergenerational experience of art, that art can be an intergenerational experience that you can have together, and that can maybe even um, put your healing, like, it may mm-hmm. allow the healing to take place at a faster rate yes. than, than other ways. Yes. And you see, that's where I come from. My parents were both residential school survivors. And when they were raising us kids, we were not taught our language. We were not taught any art or crafts or anything pertaining to that because we had to live in white society. And our parents wanted to ensure that we were taught white society. Mm-hmm. And um, it was only when they got older that they decided my mom moved back to her reserve. Mm-hmm. And that's when I got to experience that. Right. I got to live with her. I got to see, you know, yes, I would see my cousins, but. You know, it wasn't the same. No. And I went back, and and I was welcome into our community. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I I created a lot of laughter for some people because I was always, well, why do we do that? You know, and they would laugh. Oh, Phyllis, this is why. You know, so I had to do a lot of learning. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, I do not blame my parents because that's what they were raised is to be acceptable in white society, lose all their native ways, mm-hmm. you know, and um, that's where we are today. And we have a lot of people who went through this system and a lot of terrible things happened to them. And with us natives, we've always heard the stories and we always believed in the stories. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think my parents would have said about the finding of the 215 unmarked graves of finally, now they're going to believe us. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, totally. There was a real... I've noticed the climate has changed in so many different ways, even if they're very subtle. And that's a real... Um, it's, it's always welcomed when I even feel it at a very subtle level. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I feel like if I didn't... You know, I had to grow up with a lot of acceptance, too, because my parents were both went to residential schools. My mom went to the Alberni Indian Residential School in Port Alberni, and my father went to the St. Joseph's Mission in William Blake. And um, it was uh, just their, their ways. I think if I didn't do um, that work of, of really under, trying to understand where they're coming from, and maybe my work would have been influenced differently because it gave me a whole different perspective on them as people and more of an acceptance of that they were, you know, they did the best they could. And it, it helped me to understand really about where they were coming from because I couldn't, it was very difficult to talk about in our family. And it, I mean, that was the reason I did that work because it wasn't talked about in our family. It was just known. It was just a known fact that yes. no one really talked about, which is very strange. And then I noticed, oh, no one talks about it in the school either, and no one talks about it yes. amongst my friends, and no one talks about it in the larger society. And I thought to myself, maybe everyone's gotten over it. Mm-hmm. I actually remember thinking to myself, like, maybe we have done the work. Maybe it's all, maybe everyone's all over it. Maybe no one has a problem with it. And then I realized, no, that's not it. And, you know, when I finally came to the conclusion uh, that I did, I just was like, wow, you know, we, we really need to find ways that we can express this history about ourselves because the understanding of it doesn't only impact us, it impacts every person who calls themselves or would like to call themselves Canadian people. Yes. I feel like a big reason why we don't have a very strong, what I'd say, like a Canadian identity in terms of you know, we think of a lot of stereotypical things. A lot of stereotypical things come up when you talk about Canada and the identity of Canada. And I feel like it's because that identity hasn't been tempered with with um, real trueness in terms of history and what happened on these different territories. And these things are important to know and understand at, at some level so that we can... Um, become this kind of have this collective identity that we all where we're all where we are truly all in this together because reconciliation can't really happen until that feeling is, is processed through us either it just it's not something you know you can't really reconcile two things that weren't together in the first place right so you know we've we've been working on that um, concept through art for quite a long time and and it just started to kind of ring not very um, powerful to me, that word, anymore, because I was realizing that they're skipping this huge step that cannot just benefit Indigenous, because it's, in, it's not just Indigenous history, this is all of our history that lives on this land, on these territories. And it's only going to er- enrich us, mm-hmm. all of us, not just Indigenous, to be able to, to connect level where we can really try to understand one another yes so i feel like the work of like my thesis and then just working with the youth it really helped me to kind of be a bridge to those generations in some way 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, the school system, the education, the educators, you know, um, I vaguely remember, I think it was in grade 11 that we had the history of Canada that actually spoke of the native peoples across Canada, but it was only in one chapter, and they didn't mention anything about residential schooling. So most Canadians did not realize that this was going on. I know, it was such so tragic, actually, because I, like, the reason I started on the research, which my thesis can actually be found online. If you look up my name in SFU, it'll come up. It's called Making Connections with Sequentin Family Through Storytelling, A Journey in Transformative Rebuilding. And you can access it online as a read. But the reason I, like, when I think about the writing of that thesis, when I was 15, uh, someone came into the classroom, a teacher that I know, and he had brought in current events, so he'd bring in a newspaper clipping, and he brought one in about the first, um, it was either a community or a group of people that were taking the uh, Catholic Church, trying to take them to court for residential school claims. Uh-huh. And he, you know, no one had ever heard of this before, and he asked, does anyone in here know anyone that went to a residential school? And I just kind of, even though, like, because I wasn't a strong student, even though I went on to excel in, in higher learning, academia, I was not a strong student in high school. I was actually very struggling very much, but I think it, I know it was because I, there was nothing relatable to me mm-hmm. in, that, in that school or what was being taught. And what I knew of the reality that I lived in was not even being acknowledged in the system. I was very, um, I'd say, I guess, disengaged. But when he said that, I just kind of put my hand up and then I realized, oh, great, you know, like, why am I putting my hand up when going to mean more work for me. So he asked me, who, you know, can you t- tell us more? And I said, oh, both my parents went. And when he said, can you tell us more? Everyone looked at me and it felt like they actually was the first time they ever actually looked at me. Like in a real way, it was, I don't know, I'm not saying that. They actually saw my, you. They, yeah, they actually saw me for what I saw, like what I experienced. I, and it was a really moment that I, I'll never forget in my life because it felt like time and space kind of stopped for a second. Mm-hmm. And then I realized, wow, this is important stuff. So I offered to do an interview with my mom and my dad, not even thinking about it. And then, you know, when I got home, that was the reality. Like, my mom was more <clears throat> okay to open up because she had been studying at SFU and they had opportunities to... Um, it was an Indigenous program they were in that was actually on um, Kamloops Indian Band Reserve. They used to have the SFU campus there. It was a very unique school, and so she was going to school there. And so they were kind of getting used to sharing a bit about their story, and so I interviewed her first, her first, but when I interviewed my father, that was when I realized, oh, my God, what am I doing? Like, probably not very ethical at the time. Like, I was only 15. I didn't know any better, but then when he responded to me, like, I asked him, you know, just, what's the first thing you think about when you think about residential school? And he just told me, like, hey, Mika, cool it. Like, immediately. Like, he didn't, he couldn't even actually believe that I was openly saying, asking him anything. Mm-hmm. And I don't even remember if I actually finished or even did the interview, because everything was kind of a blur after that. And then when I got into school, or into um, academia, 
you know, and, and when I was at my master's level, we had to decide exactly what we were going to focus on. And I didn't want to focus on residential schools because of all the rhetoric that was drilled into our heads about, oh, I have to get over it. It's a long time ago. You know, it was really drilled into everyone's head. And even I, as an Indigenous person myself, was even thinking that. Yes, in my head. And But, you know, when you study the impacts on families, guess what is the massive elephant in the room? Like, you cannot escape from it. And so it was good that I did that. Yes. You know, I because I had to come to that realization myself. And then I had to think about why would this be hidden for so long? Why would, you know, why would this have happened in this way? And that, asking those questions brought me to a lot of different places. And really the reason I did that research was to have a, a relationship with my dad. And that's pretty messed up that you have to do a, a study to be able to try to have a relationship with your dad. Like, I was the closest probably... My dad had six daughters, I'm the oldest. I was probably the closest to him of all his daughters, but that was just barely, I barely even got, you know, that was hard to even get to that place. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. doing that really it deepened our relationship, but it also made me saw a lot, see a lot of other things. Yes. And you see, I was the youngest in my family of eight children, and I was the one that was closest to my dad. And he had went to residential school and he got out and he decided to fight in World War Two. So he signed all his rights away in order to go. And we used to have conversations about his experience. And he always used to say in school, they taught us that we were no good, that we had to follow the way of the Lord, but I couldn't believe our God would do this to us children. Mm -hmm. He said, but in the army, they taught us how to be killers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, he had a lot of horrific stories from the war. And, um, you know, I now realize that maybe that's why my father had issues, mm-hmm. you know, through his life, mm-hmm. you know, and he had no one to talk to. But again, we have to go to commercial. So mm-hmm. if you can hold on, Mika, we're sure. going to come back and we're going to talk some more about what, you know, we have experienced in our lives. So mm-hmm. we'll be right back. If you're affected by dementia, you're not alone. The Alzheimer's Society of BC offers in-person and virtual support groups for caregivers and people living with early symptoms of dementia. Learn, laugh, and help others through mutual understanding. For a list of upcoming support group meetings or more information, visit alzbc.org. Registration is also available through the First Link Dementia Helpline at 1-800-936-6033. In-person and virtual support groups from the Alzheimer's Society of BC. Sign up today. 
The Prince George RCMP is currently investigating a string of break and enters to some local cannabis stores. From just before midnight on October 3rd through to about 3.30 a.m. on October 4th, the cannabis stores near 15th and Victoria, near Westwood and Massey, and on the 400 block of George Street were broken into by multiple suspects. Anyone with information about these events or who the suspects may be are asked to contact the RCMP at 250-561-3300. Learn how to set the stage and utilize some fun settings in your smartphone or digital camera Tuesday, December 13th from 6 to 8 at Studio 2880. Discover the fun and addiction of bokeh photography with Christina Watts just in time to produce creative photos for the holidays. Registration and full details are available through the Arts North link at studio2880.com. Bokeh photography with Christina Watts, Tuesday, December 13th from 6 to 8 at Studio 2880. Forecast from Environment Canada for today mainly cloudy with a 60% chance of flurries, then clearing Wind for the southwest at 20K, gusting to 40, a high of 4. Tonight clear, becoming partly cloudy late this evening. Southwest winds becoming light, a low of minus 8, with a wind chill to minus 11. On Tuesday, clearing late in the morning, wind up to 15, and a high of 1. And we're back again. And we're talking to Mika Morgan, um, artistic director of Two Rivers. And we were just discussing our own parents and their experiences with residential school and how we broke the barrier of being able to talk to our parents about their educational experiences. So with you, that started to build the bridge between you and your father. Yeah, like even doing the first interview with him, well... Um, when I was 15, and it was amazing that 15 years later I found myself doing the same thing, but in a different, totally different way. Um, And it was still very excruciatingly painful and and very difficult to do, even though I had, you know, done all this background research and I had um, ethical consent forms for him to sign and all these things that were different than when I approached him when I was 15, yet I was still doing the same thing, and he was affected in the same way. And so when I did the re- when I did his interview, you know, I, I didn't interview him until the last. Right. Um, I didn't transcribe it until last. I actually ended up creating what is called these, what I call poetic narratives based on these interviews, and I did that one last for him as well. And I spent a lot of time speaking with my partner about just the process. And he was saying, you know, what is it that you're scared of um, when you speak in speaking to your dad? And I, and I just said, I, I just blurted out, like, I'm scared of hurting him. And he said, why do you have to look at it the way that way? Why can't you look at it that you're allowing him to see? And that brought me a lot of clarity and help at that time. Right. Because I was so obsessed as a young person, kind of parenting my parents. And even though my parents were good parents, like, my dad was always a very strong provider, even though he had he had a lot of addiction issues. Right. And my mom, as well, was very, um, she's just a wonderful mother. And they did the best they could, but there was, uh, it was so difficult as a young, uh, as the oldest growing up. And um, there's a lot of old ways that are kind of expected of you, and then 
you're, you're living in these contemporary times with a, where a lot has changed, and then there's this whole middle part where no one really knows anything, and that's where I felt like we're always stuck. So mm-hmm. just even doing the interview with him was very difficult as an adult, and he did it because he believed in my work and he wanted to support my work, not necessarily because he wanted to do the interview. You know, yeah. He didn't want to do that, but he pushed himself and did it. And it was actually the shortest interview. And But I ended up creating a piece based on that interview that was about the interview himself, about interviewing my father. And it was just such an intense, surreal experience. Um, but after that, even though that process wasn't enjoyable and it didn't seem to or do anything really it did do something it deepened our relationship and we were able to kind of come to a place where we were in a little more level understanding of one another right and he was able to to trust me more i think a lot of it was about just sitting with people in their pain rather than trying to fill up the silence with words or or um you know, just sitting with them, because I had to listen to my transcriptions. Or when I was transcribing, I had to listen to the verbatim, and I had to verbatim transcribe. And, um, I could not believe in my first couple interviews how much I would try to fill up silence. When they would be quiet, I would try to talk, because a part of me was nervous, and, you know, a part of me was missing the cue of that. That meant for me to just be quiet even more and allow them to open up a bit more. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think I would have understood that unless I got a chance to listen back to it and really have an objective view of what was going on there. And so I learned more uh, effective listening and I started to interpret things in a different way. And then I feel like that really deepened our ability to communicate, not just with him, but with other survivors as well. Mm-hmm. Yes, you know, and and that's just it. You know, I had a survivor on who said as a small boy, they would put a thumb on their shoulder. And as they were older, 12, it was a hand on their heads to have full control of them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they never spoke of their experiences at school because... It wasn't allowed, and it was accepted, mm-hmm. you know. And um, with my own parents, you know, I remember my mom late at night if she couldn't sleep and, you know, we couldn't sleep. She would be telling us stories, and it would be in the dark. You know, this is what I did at school, you know. But she never told us of the discipline that anyone faced Mm -hmm. to her education was really important. And she would say, you guys can go to school in the morning and come home in the afternoon. So you should go to school as much as possible. Mm -hmm. She did not say that she lived at her school for a majority of her childhood. Mm -hmm. You know, so I think we all had to, um, sit back and let them talk once they wanted to talk to us about our 
their experience in education. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, and it's a similar way of how we were saying earlier. I was, I was expressing how we would we would have the youth come around to themselves. It's not even really a youth thing. It's like finding ways that people can come around to themselves in their own unique and personal, very personal way. Mm-hmm. There's not like a one, you know, a one-off for how healing can happen. It's just there's there's so many ways, and I think that if I if I didn't do that research, be able to really kind of learn how to listen, and then and then learn how to communicate in different ways, and then create these opportunities but to to learn from other people about how art. Like, especially art, when I say art, I mean, like, music as well, writing, visual art. When you're doing that together, often you're quiet, you're working on things, you might have some music in the back sometimes, um, but you can have a variety of generations work on a piece, and, you know, they'll feel closer at the end of the day than they were going to some retreat or something. Like, just them spending time together in this in these moments where they're creating and then to, we used to always have, and I still do, different generations of people come in as guest artists. We mm-hmm. have elders, young people, everyone in between, you know, men, women, trans. Like, we would try to have a lot of representation from different walks of life. Right. And kind of show the, the people we were working with, like, look at this example, look at this example. Like, there's no one right way. And and I think them seeing that and just being able to be around people who could um, help them develop their ideas without trying to change their ideas. Right. That really helped a lot, too. Yeah. So in the future with um, Two Rivers, what are you going to be doing next and where are you going to be doing it? Yeah, well, that's a great question. Um, we've just, like, we've been madly working on grants because our last uh, our last show was in August, but then, of course, in my own band, um, we were still traveling around doing different festivals and tours and performances at different places. And so we continue to write grants and get ready for next year. So um, there's a little bit less funding. Last year, there's a lot more because of COVID reopening. Uh-huh. So this year is probably going to be a little less, uh, but still we're going to continue on the movable feast because we haven't, we haven't been able to get back to Lytton yet. I mean, I don't know if any, I'm sure some of you have probably seen the state of the town and been able to drive oh, by, but yeah. it's still quite devastated. Mm-hmm. Um, so our next, uh, we've actually been collaborating with the Analkin Center, which is a um, Indigenous performance and literary center, Indigenous um, developed, and uh, they've been around for probably 30 years, quite some time. Um, they have a variety of alumni that they work with every year, and so we wanted to work with them last year, um, but with, they were still closed because of COVID, but the Ignite Festival of the Arts, um, or it's called Ignite the Arts, 
its base in Penticton last year was its first year. So Two Rivers Remix collaborated with them on bringing a performance to the Cleveland Theatre um, in March. And so this year we're finally able to work with the Nalkin and we're going to work with Ignite as well. So it'll be this kind of three-part collaboration with Two Rivers Remix, Ignite, and the Nalkin on bringing a full night's presentation of of performers to the Cleveland, hopefully to the Cleveland Theatre again. And we're just applying for funding to do that. And so that'll be, we'll be welcomed into the SEAL territory. Um, And and we're really excited for that because there's a lot of really great alumni that are from that program that are now still, you know, they've been trailblazing in music and arts now for some time. And so it'll be really great to kind of bring them back together. And that's what we've noticed too is, our events somehow become, because they're so intergenerational, yeah. our events somehow become like a reunion of sorts for all different artists that have been influenced by each other. And that's just that was just a side effect that we didn't really think about even. But every time people would get together at our events, they'd all be so happy to see each other again, and they had known each other from this or that. So, mm-hmm. you know, our people are influenced by one another, and they really have like to have a chance to show that. So we're going to be doing that in March, end of March. And then we're planning a couple different, probably about four different movable feast events. So another one at the year. It'll be the second year commemoration of the fire. And we're going to ensure that we come back to the Lytton area because that is our host and home community. One day we do want to do a festival there again when it's recovered. Right. Um, and then, but then this time we're probably going to do, um, we'd like to do Tecumlitz again if there's the opportunity. We've been invited back to the Okanagan Indian Band, but they would like to do a two-day event. Mm. Uh, Williams Lake wants us to come back to the, to the um, Williams Lake um, Indian Band there. They have a beautiful uh, field there, and they have a ar- new arbor as well. So we're just looking at future dates, but you can always stay posted on our Two Rivers Remix Facebook page. We have Two Rivers Remix uh, Society page, and then also we have a website that usually the Facebook one is more updated quicker. Uh-huh. The website is up as well, and that's just tworiversremix.ca or 2RMX. And if you just stay posted on those, we have an Instagram as well. If you just look at 2RMX, it should come up. And we 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 promote quite a quite a bit of we stay on top of promoting our stuff quite a bit. So, mm-hmm. and you, you can also look at our live stream. Some of them might still be up, so you can check out our past work. We have an amazing gallery of photos that. Our, um, we have an in, a photographer, indigenous photographer that we work with. Her name is Billie Jean Gabriel, and she just does incredible art. But she also does portraits with all of the artists after their performances. Oh, which is wow. Really unique. We haven't really had a chance to do that very often. And so we've yes. got some incredible galleries of photos that are from our past events. And it's just like I have to go and look at them myself once in a while because. The planning takes so long, and then the event happens in a flash, and then you kind of forget about what you've done. And I think it's important that we reflect and remember that, especially when we've done work like that, we gotta we got to keep that in us to kind of help us through the tough times afterwards. When mm-hmm. We always... Hard, yeah. 
we always should reflect backwards to see where we have come from in order to make our path forward in our future. Yes, totally. I totally agree. You know, we have to look back and and remember those happy thoughts before we can carry on to our path, you know, and and then that way we're more sure of our steps as we go forward. And we've actually been trying to organize to do an event in Prince George. We just haven't been able to get the timing right with the... But I think now that, you know, the um, communities are opening up post-COVID and uh-huh. things are, are getting to a little different than what was normal, so... Um, you know, we're gonna, we're hoping to get up to the Prince George area someday. Um, we'd like to do probably a two day thing there. We've made some really great connections with musicians and artists from in those territories, and we'd really love to to present up there in the near future. So just keep keep an eye out on the Two Rivers oh, yes. Remix pages, and <laughs> maybe we'll be there soon. Yes, I would love to see a movable feast in our area and have the whole community come forward. And there's so many different places that we could have this. You know, it, it would be just fantastic to bring us all together. Yes, it sure would. Yes. Do you have any ideas of Indigenous venues? Then just let me know. I will. I will. (laughs) So, yes, it's been fantastic to speak to you about everything that you are doing and and how you have worked around all the roadblocks, the fire, COVID, you know, and being able to bring, you know, the Native community together and find that same plane that everyone is going through and and making them enjoy what you do for people like it's just fantastic to hear what you have done thank you so much and thank you for the opportunity to share these stories and and uh because i really i love the territory up there and i visit there quite often so it's a real honor Oh, great. You know, fantastic. And people can go to two rivers remix.ca and see what you guys have done. And we can look forward to hopefully that you're up here in the Prince George area bringing us the talent together that we will recognize that we probably don't even know we have here right now. So yeah. every know. time we do a, a new um, event, it just seems to bring out more and more talent from all the places that we go to. Yes, yes. So I'm looking forward to this. And thank you very much, Mika. And uh, we have been talking to Mika Morgan, Artistic Director for the Two Rivers Remix Society, and her movable feast, and we're hoping that she will be traveling to Prince George. So thank you very much for today, Mika. Thank you, I will talk to you soon. Thank you. So everyone today, this is Community Echoes, and I just want to say that, you know, you can go and see all about the pictures and and portraits at tworiversremix.ca. And if you don't have time to listen to us at 1 o'clock on Mondays, you can go to www.cfisfm.ca 
and it will be in our archives that we have the recording. And we do this every week at 1 o'clock. So we'll see and hear from people next Monday at 1. Bye-bye. This is 93.1 CFIS-FM in Prince George, proudly supported by community groups like the BC Old Time Fiddlers.